Microservice architecture has become very common over the past few years because of the availability of containers and container orchestrators like Kubernetes. While containers are positive for scaling apps and making them more available, they've also introduced hurdles like persisting data and state, and container restarts or pod failures. Development teams put significant work into designing applications that take these hurdles into account because without precautions, you can lose valuable data or crash your app. The company Temporal provides tools for both building complex microservices as well as apps that use microservices. They use two primary function types, workflow and activity. Workflow functions persist all local variables and threads, so if the server the app runs on crashes, it's picked up on a different server where it left off down the line. Activity functions automatically initiate retry logic if the service the function invokes fails for something like its server being down. Temporal provides visibility into end-to-end workflows that can span multiple services. In this episode, we talked to Ryland Goldstein, head of product at Temporal. Previously, he was the lead project manager at Reshuffle and software engineer lead at Parallel Machines. We discussed the challenge of managing state and microservices, orchestrating microservices, and how Temporal simplifies this process for development teams. A few announcements before we get started. One, if you like Clubhouse, subscribe to the Club for Software Daily on Clubhouse. It's just Software Daily, and we'll be doing some interesting Clubhouse sessions within the next few weeks. Uh, And two, if you are looking for a job... We are hiring a variety of roles. We're looking for a social media manager. We're looking for a graphic designer. And we're looking for writers. If you are interested in contributing content to Software Engineering Daily, or even if you're a podcaster and you're curious about how to get involved, we are looking for people with interesting backgrounds who can contribute to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, Again, mostly we're looking for social media help and design help. But if you're a writer or a podcaster, we'd also love to hear from you. You can send me an email with your resume, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. That's jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Ryland, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. We've done a show about Temporal before and workflow engines in general, but I think this is a pretty deep subject. And I'd like to start off by just exploring the distributed systems-related problems that a typical infrastructure team might encounter that are still not solved by all these nice tools that we have today, like AWS and Kubernetes and so on. What are the outstanding problems? Yeah, it's a great question. From my point of view, it's actually sort of the same problems that people have been having even before distributed systems were like in vogue and they were the way to build applications. I think, you know, the same problems around, you know, transactionality and atomicity, basically guaranteeing that things like, you know, transferring money works out well. Those were problems that existed far before, you know, most systems were distributed and there were all these web scale companies. I think what's ended up happening is that those problems, they lingered. And, you know, those are still challenges that, you know, companies that are really important, like banks, and other financial institutions, even just like, you know, e-commerce, they still have to solve those problems. But now it's under the context of having to do it in a distributed environment. And so it's essentially having to solve the same problems that were already challenging. But now the pieces that you're actually building your application on top of and the things that, you know, you're sort of relying on are kind of shifting under you because they're these distributed systems with all these edge cases. So why is there a solution to this plethora of edge cases? How is that possible? Like, If we have all these distributed systems edge cases, it seems like they would have to be solved through piecemeal solutions. 
Yeah, it's a really good question because it's the sort of mindset and mentality that a lot of the people that we even work with have when they start looking into temporal and start evaluating temporal. I can't tell you the number of times that I've talked to, you know, a candidate or a potential user who's pretty much told me that, you know, within one of their companies and their past, you know, experiences, they've built something that's almost identical or very similar to temporal. And when you actually get down into it, what you realize is that like, while there are a lot of similarities in terms of like, you know, the the goals and the sort of needs are the same and the sort of the surface area of what they build looks similar, what they built is a very vertical version of what temporal is, right? And so their solution is very tailored to the specific set of problems and challenges that are relevant in their domain, but they don't go after all of the generic edge cases of a distributed system. And so what ends up happening in those cases is that like, you know, maybe for that initial use case where they build this, you know, temporal light, things work out really well. But when they need to start, you know, bringing in more scope, which is inevitable for basically any business need, and the boss comes and says, hey, you need to add this new feature, we need to support this new customer. Well, now you're adding these new features on top of this, you know, sort of temporal light that you were initially scoping it for. And so, you know, you start having a lot of debt and you start having these maintenance issues and things become very, very challenging. And eventually you reach a point where you've pretty much built like a poor man's generic, you know, temporal. But the problem is that you didn't take into account all these requirements at the outset. You didn't take these requirements into account when you started building the thing. And so you have a very suboptimal solution for this now generic problem. And um, this is the position that, you know, a majority of our users find themselves in who are coming from existing solutions. And even just a lot of people I talk to, um, just, you know, who are developing software in the industry. Can you give me a specific example of a problem that a technology like Temporal can solve? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, kind of hearkening back to that, you know, financial use case I alluded to. I think the most simple one is just a money transfer, right? So if you want to have, you know, a process where money is taken from one account and put into a different account and, you know, the money is stored in different banks or, you know, access through different services, those services don't have any way of surfacing a transaction between each other. And so, you know, the canonical problem you have is that, you know, you send a request to do the withdrawal and then you want to do a deposit afterwards. And if there's some sort of failure that happens between those two steps, you now have a level of inconsistency in your application. And, you know, specifically in the context of transferring money, this is a really big and very visible problem, right? Because, you know, people, they hate losing money. And when you're actually, you know, dealing with money as your business, it's very easy to see when it's lost, as opposed to, you know, if it's something more virtual or, or less tangible, sometimes it's harder to tie back to the money and the finances, although it's almost always possible. Can you give me a description of the Temporal API and how companies use it in general? Yeah. So the thing that's a bit interesting about Temporal is that for us, an API is a lot different than what you would have with the traditional, you know, software as a service or any any level of service. You know, most people, when they think about an API, their minds kind of go to what Postman does, right, where there's a set of endpoints that you call. And like, you know, the way that you integrate that API into your application is by making RPC calls, HTTP calls, whatever. And you make them to these endpoints that are well known. and, And that's your contract that you have with that service. In Temporal, the approach is quite different because, you know, the majority of the time users aren't just, you know, writing RPC calls that, you know, call our our backend. What actually happens is a much deeper integration into the application itself. And so, you know, we have these client-side libraries that are provided in, you know, a few popular languages. We support Go, Java, and we have a Node SDK that's coming out right now, also PHP. 
And essentially what happens is that you have to take a different approach to building your application in general when you're using Temporal. Instead of, you know, just having like a function which, you know, has a bunch of routes and you have like HTTP server, with Temporal, you build your applications with building blocks, which we call workflows and activities. And so all of the usage generally of Temporal's APIs are through these activity and workflow functions, which kind of encapsulate your business logic. And so actually a lot of the usage of Temporal, that's that's actually the extent of it, right? So if you're writing a very simple application, and that you just need to orchestrate activities from your workflow, you probably don't need to use any of the other APIs of Temporal. You know, we offer things like um, a way to process events that are coming into that workflow and a way to, you know, read data from the workflow. But for a very simple money transfer use case, you might only need to call an activity and, you know, that's the gist of your workflow. And so that's the interesting thing about Temporal is that, you know, API usage, is it means something a lot different. And now, obviously, we do have APIs to some degree, you know, for things like a visibility layer that we surface, which allows you to get some top-down insights into your running application. And we do have APIs for that. But in terms of the, like, you know, the core path of usage of Temporal, it's not really traditionally API-driven. It's more that you write code in the way that, you know, we've integrated with the client. It allows us to introspect and know when events are being generated from that code and statefully persist them on our backend. What are some of the failure cases in that kind of state management? Yeah, so there's, you know, a lot of them, especially when you start talking about the generic problem, which again is like sort of the core value that Temporal provides to users today. So I think, you know, there's the obvious errors like, you know, the machine that you're running your code on crashes, um, the temporal service crashes, the downstream that you're depending on isn't available, right? And so there's this plethora of different situations and different scenarios. And even once with the same components, if they happen in a different order, maybe the way that you want to handle them is different. And so, you know, I think the thing is that most failure cases that people care about are actually at the application level, like your downstream isn't down, or maybe the availability isn't as great as you would have expected. And now you have to basically implement all this boilerplate logic in state management to ensure that you can manage the life cycle of that downstream service being up or down in a given point in time. And so people end up building, you know, the majority of like state machines that we see our users build when they, you know, come from an existing solution are all around these application level failures where you're coordinating a bunch of different services, maybe ones that you own, maybe ones that you don't own. And you can never really guarantee this is like the core problem of distributed systems, right? Is that it's it's not you, it's not the thing that is currently running your application. And therefore you can't control whether it's up or down in a given point in time. And even if you're really confident that, you know, this downstream service, like maybe S3, who has, you know, like 10 million nines at this point you're pretty confident that that service is going to be available, but like you probably still want to code within your application around the case where it's not available because, you know, it only takes one time and maybe all of a sudden that sends your application haywire and now, you know, you're charging people money that you shouldn't be doing. And so I think this is the core problem is that there's all these failure conditions which are basically, you know, domain specific to the way that you write your application and the framework and tooling that people rely on today for the most part doesn't really give you a way of generically handling those application failures. It's sort of left to the developer to handle them on a case-by-case basis. These kinds of problems were solved in different ways by, you know, companies that had to implement solutions. Like, what are the kind of hackneyed subpar solutions that are used if people are not using Temporal? Is it just like retries and all kinds of caching stuff? What do people do to try to get around these sorts of problems without some sort of framework or tool chain? Absolutely. So yeah, as you said, I think the most predominant one by far that we see are the ad hoc solutions, right? So 
the one thing is that there's not a lot of people that come to us with like a single system that they're then, you know, replacing with temporal. In almost all cases, they're coming to us, you know, with a set of different dependencies that they've chained together to provide the set of guarantees, which they feel are very, very important for their application. And, you know, there is some very common patterns here. I think the most common and the one that, you know, we kind of often talk about here are the state machine problems, which is, you know, again, you have two different services, which are maybe, you know, running on different databases. You can't have like a formal transaction between them. And you want to make sure that, you know, if one of these things executes successfully and then there's a failure in between them, that you have a ability to, you know, have the similar behavior you'd get with a traditional transaction where, you know, either completely succeeds or it completely fails. And there's never sort of this middle period in between. And so, you know, what most people end up doing to solve those problems is they construct these implicit state machines. And to do that, they rely on things like, you know, machinery or Redis or Celery or whatever, you know, your solution is to provide basically, you know, these queues and these persistence layers where they can push these intermediary events that represent the state between these transactions. And so, you know, that's just the infrastructure side of the solution, right? You need to have a database, you need to have a queue, you need to have all these things. There's also the burden it puts on the application itself, which is that now when you write your code, you can't assume that that code is starting from the beginning of where, you know, maybe the top of your code, the first line, because you could be entering, you know, an, an instance of execution that represents something that previously failed in the past. And so now you have to burden your application logic with all of these, you know, kind of controls and different edge cases where you say, okay, well, you know, if I'm starting with this state, then I don't need to do these steps. And so you you end up adding all this boilerplate and complexity to your application. And the whole goal the entire time was just to have a piece of code that runs from beginning to end without issues. So I think I have an understanding of what Temporal does for the user at this point. I'd like to talk a little bit more about the usage of Temporal, the company versus the open source projects around it. Can you describe like what the hosted service does relative to the open source frameworks? Yeah, absolutely. So today the answer is is not that complex. You know, we brought up our cloud solution, I think four or five months ago at this point. And, you know, our initial goal was that we had this huge group of users who, you know, weren't interested in running and managing their own temporal setup internally. And so, you know, for those people, I think it's like a basic, you know, they don't want to run infrastructure thing. There's no hosted version of temporal other than the one that, you know, we're, we provide and we, we started providing. And so there was a very like primitive need, which is like, you know, we don't want to run our own infrastructure. And so I think a lot of our users today, a lot of our customers, that's the category they fall in. Now, obviously, you know, the benefit, even in that case where you're differentiated just by the fact that, you know, you're putting software on servers is that, you know, we're the ones who have the biggest mind share of Temporal. You know, they're the creators of the technology for like, you know, the last 10 years. They're in the business. They're able to provide you support and assistance. And like, you know, that's the sort of vision that they're going to be able to provide to the, the product at both the customer and a user level. So I think that's a big thing for our users and our customers today. What I think a lot of our customers are buying into is the future prospects. You know, the things that we're going to be able to do with the cloud service and the cloud offering, which just aren't going to be possible in the open source. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of things just about the existing model, which we plan to sort of improve and, and, you know, make even fundamentally better. So right now, the system is known for being quite scalable and, you know, very, very durable. And I think we're just going to make that even more true. So, for example, you know, if you really want to run at a large scale with Temporal today, you have to rely on the Cassandra database underneath. There's a lot of, you know, reasons for this, but the biggest one is that, you know, the other database solutions that we support with Temporal, they don't have the greatest horizontal scaling story. And that's sort of our, our bottleneck when we design things at the system level. 
And so, you know, one of our, our biggest things is, you know, making sure that the experiences with other databases are also good because, you know, right now there's this huge barrier of entry for people who want to use the product at a scale that, you know, is significant. They have to use Cassandra. And so, you know, right now we're kind of advertising our cloud is the solution to that problem. You know, regardless of what database we're using, we can guarantee the scalability and, you know, reliability things at any scale. And that way you don't even have to worry about what database is being used under the hood. And I think, you know, so outside of the raw performance improvements and the, you know, kind of baseline stuff that we want to do, there's also like a really strong vision there about the way that people are building applications today, about the way that people are collaborating with different teams on building those applications. And and Temporal sort of accidentally is positioned in the central place to solve all those problems. And so, you know, we think that we can add a lot of value adds on top of the existing offering, which we think is already pretty robust and, and, you know, feature complete. But we think we can add things like, for example, analytics. And we might even be able to tell you when you have your, you know, application running on Temporal, which parts of your application are slowing things down or which parts of your application are performing as well as they could be. And the reason that we can do this is because, you know, there's this sort of engineer in the company who likes to call it inversion of execution, right? So we sort of flip the traditional execution model. And even though Temporal Cloud isn't running your code, it's sending all these events, like your workers and your applications are sending these events, which sort of represent the, you know, outline of how your code works of your business logic. And so, you know, if we implement the right things, we can actually introspect that and make, you know, pretty intelligent decisions and observations about the way that your application is flowing through the system and even recommend things like, hey, you know, there's a bottleneck in this part of your application. If you restructure things like this, it's going to have a huge improvement in performance. And that's without ever actually seeing the implementation of the code itself. And this is actually not theoretical. There's a customer that we work with who basically had this happen. We were getting some alerts on our cloud. One of the engineers looked into them. They noticed them and they realized very immediately that it wasn't going to be a problem for our service itself. Like the cloud was not, you know, in danger in any way, but that the user, you know, was basically not running their application efficiently and that there was these bottlenecks. And, you know, from our point of view, it almost made us more money. So like, you know, there wasn't really an economic motivation, but we felt like, you know, it was really our job as, you know, a developer company to go to this customer and basically tell them, hey, look, you know, we looked at the events that are being sent from your workers and we really believe that there's a way that you can change things to, you know, make that better for you and better for your experience, better for your users and also probably save you some money. And so we were actually able to go and tell them exactly how to fix this problem that they had in their application, even though we had never seen their source code, just from the data that we're getting from the workers in terms of events. Tell me a little bit about the product design process as you are the head of product at the company, or maybe not the head of product. You work on the product. You are the head of product. No, no, I'm head of product. That's, that's, that's good. You are head of product. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about the product design process and just the general engineering management side of things. Like, what does the product development process look like and how have you iterated over time? Yeah, so it's a very nice question because it's definitely a non-traditional answer for Temporal compared to most companies. I think one of the biggest things that, you know, from the product side that I kind of go up against at Temporal is that the technology is sufficiently complex that most of our users really don't have a deep understanding of how it works. And so what that kind of manifests as from the product point of view is that people don't often have really fundamental feedback about, you know, the way that the product works or, you know, what features they're looking for. Obviously, we get like, you know, a lot of kind of high level features, very surface level things like, you know, you should support SAML or you support OIDC or, you know, any of these things. But when it comes to like, you know, changes to the way that the product fundamentally functions, there's very rarely feedback that comes from users directly. And so, you know, we have to do a lot of work basically to go and understand what 
what are the real needs of these users, right? Because in most cases, our users are experiencing actual problems, ones that if we change the product, we could definitely solve them. The issue is that, you know, they don't know how to communicate those. They don't even understand that they're having a problem which Temporal could even solve. And so I would say that like, you know, user research and just, you know, understanding our users and developers is probably like, you know, something that we spend more time doing as a product function than anything else. And even though that's sort of a traditional part of a product process, I would say that the amount of time we spend doing it is, is definitely disproportionate compared to the companies that I've been in, at least the experiences that I know of. And so that's definitely a huge part of it. I think once it comes down to actually designing things, again, you know, we have to take in the requirements and the needs of what we see our users doing. But in terms of how the actual APIs, so to speak, are designed and, you know, the surface area of the thing, that's something that is very much left up to the product and engineering side of within Temporal itself. And so, you know, I think we use very traditional processes to some degree in terms of, you know, we're, we're agile and, you know, we try to do things where we have a real design before we start doing any work. But I think what's different is that there's not as much of a validation phase where we can be like, oh, is this, you know, we can go ask users, hey, is this going to work for you? Because a lot of the times the product level feature is something that's sort of like only internal to the distributed system. And so that's definitely a huge challenge that we have from the product side of things. I think the one thing that's very interesting about Temporal is that like everyone is very technical at this stage. And so, you know, I'm the head of product of the company. Um, I'm definitely not like one of the least technical people in Temporal. Um, you know, my background is almost completely doing development in, in distributed systems specifically. And so, you know, even the rest of the product team that I manage, almost every single one of them is a proper engineer. And so that means that, you know, we have a, a lot of different processes in general because, you know, pretty much everyone can code. Pretty much everyone understands, you know, basic distributed systems theory and, you know, concurrency and parallelism. And so people are a lot more cross-functional in that sense where, you know, somebody from the product team can do a pretty good job of understanding what the engineering requirements will be based on something that a user asks for. And so, you know, I think that we have a lot more collaborative and very, very like integrated process in that sense where engineering often does a lot of product work and product does a lot of engineering work, which definitely leads to a very interesting environment. I think as an engineer, it's a really great environment, honestly, because, you know, things feel very, very collaborative and mutual. So yeah, I think that's the, the sort of gist of it. I think, you know, with distributed systems, the biggest problem with, you know, the design is that there's all these implications about how things work. You know, it's very easy for me to go to the engineering team and say, hey, the account model should be designed in this way because that's the ideal user experience. But as somebody who's built a lot of distributed systems, I know what the implications of, you know, the structure of our accounts, for example, will have on the way that the system is actually built. And so that's definitely also a, another huge consideration is that, you know, we have a pretty mature product and there's a lot of, you know, lines of code, a lot of, you know, basically investment in the way that things are built today. And so you really have to make sure that you think through the way that your changes and the things that you want to do from the user standpoint are going to actually impact the guarantees and the performance of the system itself. Are there any bugs that users have discovered that maybe took you by surprise? So... I'm racking my, my brain to try to remember specific situations. So I think the one that I can remember that a user came up with was something around sort of like our tenancy model that we didn't understand that there was an edge case that you could basically call a resource from one environment, what we call namespaces, to another environment. And, you know, and at the time, you know, we were in the very early stages of adding authentication and authorization into the system in general. So it wasn't really that much of a security gap because there wasn't really even security in the product yet. But, you know, in a bigger picture sense, it was a very, you know, kind of like 
generic security vulnerability because you could essentially access unauthorized resources. And so that's something that, you know, we basically hadn't been thinking about the product from that point of view for the lifetime up until we added those features. And so it was something where, you know, we hadn't even thought about those things when designing the features originally. And so we were a bit surprised because we hadn't even like gone back and retroactively thought, okay, how did these changes affect these specific set of situations? And again, it goes down to like, you know, with a distributed system, there's all these edge cases and and Temporal tries to formalize those. And making sure that every single, you know, decision and product feature like, you know, authorization and authentication propagates down to all of those different edge cases is, is definitely a real challenge. And then I think, you know, maybe just to add one, an unrequested one, not a bug that was necessarily, you know, discovered by a user in the sense that they were looking through the code. But we did have an incident that we, we wrote about not too long ago, where, you know, we had a patch essentially that was put into the system that introduced a bug with Cassandra. And the bug was introduced in our, our Golang code because there's this, you know, basically shadowing functionality in Go for variables. And the shadowing led to the code being very, very difficult to reason about and understand. And so we actually missed this bug and there was an assignment and essentially the only time that this assignment could happen is if you know Cassandra itself was you know experiencing issues and so basically what happened is that you know we discovered that bug and we realized okay like you know this is a very rare thing to happen not that many people right now are running on Cassandra there isn't that much reason to be worried and so essentially you know that wasn't true. And we, we made a big mistake there. And we realized, you know, because many months went by and we had already patched that thing, but we hadn't made a broadcast about it. We hadn't gone and told people, you know, this is a big deal. And then one of our users, you know, a fellow, a relatively large user was running Cassandra in production and basically was doing some upgrades to their Cassandra deployment. Uh, that triggered this edge case happening with the, the Go shadowing. And so it created this, you know, huge, huge incident and huge problem on our side where we realized like, you know, there's users who are still running on the old versions we should have broadcast this better. And we just never expected that somebody was going to run into that edge case because we felt like it was so rare. And so that really changed like our thinking about how we communicate things to our users, how much we increase the severity of certain incidents based on their potential and not just based on, you know, how likely they are to happen. And just generally our sort of empathy for, you know, these situations and the way that they can impact people. Do you think temporal or cadence, cadence being the open source workflow engine, do you think it can build the kind of community that Kubernetes has built or like an AWS has built? Or do you think like the addressable market is different or smaller? Yeah. So I think in terms of size, there's a huge market for this technology. I think the market just grows every day by a huge, you know, even maybe order of magnitude because more and more companies are accidentally finding themselves in the position of being, you know, distributed systems companies. And, you know, this is like the coming from two different directions because, you know, nowadays any new startup that's, you know, in the software space, they realize that they need to run at a global scale. They realize they need to be on the cloud. And so, you know, from the beginning, those companies are basically distributed systems. And, you know, with the older style of companies, sort of the old guard that have been around for a longer amount of time, you know, for a long time, they were sort of battling this and they wanted to stay on prem and they didn't want to be on the cloud and they wanted to keep this monolithic architecture. But, you know, the forcing functions of, you know, kind of nature and the environment are not allowing that to happen anymore. And so they're now being pushed to, you know, adopt the cloud and, you know, start distributing things and using service based architectures. And so I think, you know, both of those are essentially funnels into the potential market for technologies like temporal and cadence. So I definitely don't see that changing anytime soon. I think, you know, specifically the question about, you know, Kubernetes, I absolutely think, you know, in terms of the usage and the adoption and the impact, 
temporal can be at the level of Kubernetes. I would say, and no offense meant to Kubernetes, I think the one thing that temporal might be able to do is be a technology that people love to use. And, you know, as somebody who's used Kubernetes once or twice at least, I can tell you that I think Kubernetes is one of the most valuable technologies that's like around today. Like, I think that, you know, we'd be a lot less far along in terms of the way that, you know, companies use software and that, you know, services are provided if Kubernetes hadn't been, you know, created and if people weren't using it so much. But I think it's very rare that people are truly like in love with Kubernetes and they feel like, you know, this is something they want to be spending their time doing and that it's like really the differentiated value. And I think, you know, there's obviously people who, you know, they're very passionate about Kubernetes. So it's not 100% true. But I think when you look at developers specifically and not people who are in the more ops or infrastructure side of things, usually they see Kubernetes as like a necessary evil, right? They don't see it as something where they're like, wow, I'm, I'm waking up every day so I can go write like an operator for Kubernetes or something like that. And so I think with Temporal, the big difference is, is that the, the developers love the product. Like developers love the way that it changes how they write their applications. And it's not something where they feel like, you know, begrudgingly, oh, we're going to use this because otherwise we won't be able to scale our business. It's almost always the opposite where they're like, our business is already having issues scaling. We need a solution there. And like, it seems like Temporal not only solves our problem, but also makes our lives 10 times easier. And I think that's something that, you know, even AWS has never really been able to get down where they provide, you know, this incredible broad catalog of services and it pretty much solves any need that you have and if you need to run at scale and you need all these requirements I mean like AWS is like pretty much you know one of the only options today and so I think you know there's definitely not trying to talk AWS down it's done an amazing thing and solved a lot of fundamental problems for you know the software industry but again it's not one of those things where people are usually that passionate developers aren't like dying to use AWS and in fact if I had to say what the weakest part of AWS is it's the developer experience is user experience it seems like something that AWS is always struggle with and you know from from their position like economically they're always very customer motivated but it's always to the point where like their need is, is satisfied the basic need is satisfied aws is not known for like doing polish on things right and like really trying to like do a ton of value added on an existing service it's more about like the breadth and like can we get the majority of adoption and so i think that's one area where you know temporal can definitely make a lot of you know distance between you know kubernetes and aws like solutions which are more focused on you know the practical functional side of solving the problem Whereas Temporal is not only, you know, addressing that aspect of it, but also saying, okay, look, there's a better way of doing this in general. Like, you know, life doesn't need to be as hard as it is right now. I think I remember asking Maxime about this when I interviewed him, but how do you see the difference between the kinds of state management problems faced by the DAG workflow engines, like the, the Airflow suite of stuff, Airflow or Prefect or Dagster? versus the kinds of like microservice-based applications we're talking about here? Yeah, I think, you know, aside from the cases where people tried to use, you know, one technology incorrectly to solve a problem that they shouldn't be trying to solve with it, I think, you know, there are some very valid places where the DAG-based approach makes sense for, you know, building stuff. I think, you know, if you try to take a generic, you know, service-based application and then, you know, write it in code and have it generate a DAG, almost never is that going to be the optimal solution. Mostly because I think code is the most expressive way to, you know, solve these sort of dynamic problems with services and communication. I think the area where, you know, solutions with DAG-based architectures really excel is when you kind of know the entire boundary of the problem up front. And so like a great example of that is, you know, if you're doing stuff with like a data processing and, you know, maybe even machine learning, there's often like a very rigid set of steps that you have to take on a set of data to transform it into feature engineering and, you know, make sure that you've sanitized it and then, you know, run your basic sort of like linear regression. And 
all of those things are pretty much known at the outset because it's very mathematical, right? It's very scholarly, for lack of a better way of putting it. And so I think, you know, for those cases, it makes a lot of sense to have a DAG, mostly because, you know, one of the huge benefits of a DAG is that once you generate it in the initialization phase, you also have the chance to optimize it. And just as, you know, with the compiler, if you have access to all of the code beforehand, you can make some really, really generous optimizations because you know the full scope of the problem. And I think the thing is, is that as the scope of the problem becomes less defined, and if there's more dynamic places for things to, you know, behave differently, the value of optimizing that DAG go down considerably, right? And like the DAG becomes so complex that you can't have a bounded way of optimizing it and constraining it. Almost similar to like, you know, a traveling salesman problem where there's just too many different things. There's too many different weights that it's very difficult to create like a bounded solution to that problem. And so I think that's a, a very similar kind of inflection point for when a DAG based system makes sense or it doesn't make sense, where if you have this very constrained problem where you know you're going to need to do this thing and then that thing, and like, you know, the order is very set in stone and there's not that much branching, you know, like having a DAG and optimizing it can give you a lot of bang for your buck. But the moment that you need to make any decisions within that DAG and start doing stuff based on like, you know, the way the previous steps evaluated, then you're going to start running into some really, really fundamental issues. And, you know, like we even know of stories of people who came from solutions like Airflow and they had like an Airflow application or Airflow pipeline that would run for maybe 10 or 15 minutes, but it would actually take more than double that just to compile the DAG to run the thing in the first place. And so there's definitely a place where, you know, it just becomes more hassle than it's worth and it doesn't provide you all that much value. And then, you know, temporal in general is much simpler to write with. So if you can afford to use it and it's not going to hurt your, your performance, it's absolutely a better solution in my mind. With that in mind, can you give me a little bit more about the long-term vision of the temporal project at the cadence project like what's the scope of the kinds of workflows that you expect to be able to to take on or are there kinds of workflows that you think you know cadence maybe cannot take on today that in the future it would be a good fit for yeah so i can start with you know what we can do today and then i'll, I'll answer the vision portion so for the what we can do today you know like for the most part, the big barrier for temporal applications and the one thing that, you know, is really important for people is that, you know, it usually makes sense to use temporal durability and, you know, reliability is important. If you're sending a bunch of, you know, like if you're sending an email blast to 10 million people and you don't really care whether all the emails get delivered, say that you only need 90% or something, even 99% of the emails to be delivered, you're not going to get a lot of value from Temporal today. You know, there's an argument to be made that there's a lot of value in Temporal around the orchestration and the expressivity of the code itself and the way that you build the application. But, you know, there's a lot of basically work that's been done specifically just around the durability side of things. And so, you know, if you don't care about durability, you're basically adding overhead to your application that you wouldn't otherwise need by basically having to go to the database after everything that you do. And so I think in general, that's sort of the best way to think about which use cases today are not the best for, you know, tempo or cadence is that if you can't afford to go to the database after, you know, doing anything stateful, then it probably doesn't make sense for you to be using temporal. So, you know, a good example there is if something super latency sensitive, you're doing VR, AR, and you need like, you know, sub millisecond, maybe even millisecond latency, you're going to have some real challenges doing that with temporal. It's not a good fit. Mostly because again, like anything you do that's stateful, you have a minimum round trip to the database and back, which is, you know, like, let's say even 10, 20 milliseconds. So very very quickly, if you have a workflow that has a few activities, you're talking, you know, like an order magnitude of 100 to 500 milliseconds to run that workflow. So for, you know, like relatively short-lived workflows that are like, you know, 
seconds or even like maybe hundreds of milliseconds to like forever, it's a great fit. But if you need those really, really fast workflows that are, you know, very performance sensitive, that's probably not a good fit for us. Now, there are definitely cases where people want the latent sensitive workflows and they also want reliability and durability. In our experience, there's not that many. And most of the time you don't really care about those things as much. But in general, if you don't care about, you know, the statefulness of your process, then it's probably not worth using Temporal today. In terms of our vision, you know, I think without even going to the stateless compute side of things, I think our vision is that, you know, like 10 years from now, anyone who's going to build like an application and, you know, I think in 10 years, pretty much every application is going to be connected or aka distributed. We think that they should be doing that with Temporal. And even more fundamentally than that, I think Temporal isn't just like an arbitrary set of features that are tied together at a point in time. I think Temporal is really like, you know, converging on what the set of cases in a distributed system are that can go wrong. And what are all the different, you know, sort of building blocks of a distributed system that you need to have access to and be aware of to build all of these different combinations and different, you know, manifestations of a distributed application. And so I think, you know, I can easily see Temporal sort of being the framework that essentially all applications are written on in the future. And, you know, if somebody's coming out of a boot camp, I would love in 10 years if they use Temporal, not just because, you know, we've done a really good job of selling things and going on the right podcasts, but because it's truly the best way of developing the application. It's it's the problem process that requires the least overhead and the least thinking about problems that you don't want to solve and just allows you to focus on the thing that's actually differentiated for your business or for your use case or even just for your project. And so I think that's the overall vision. I think, you know, one of the things is right now we solve a very specific set of distributed systems problems. I think there's definitely ones, you know, for example, if you need a big storage engine and big data processing and all of that, like, you know, we don't solve those problems today. We don't have solutions for those. And I would love to figure out ways to solve those problems. I think the one thing is that, you know, we don't want to do it the way that has been traditionally done where, you know, you say, oh, you have a lot of storage needs. Let's go build a really big storage backend. Like, I think, you know, requiring people to basically use it in the most, you know, naive, direct way. Way is sort of unfair. It's, it's not really empathetic because people don't want to go and have to learn a new way to, you know, store things or, you know, a new storage system. They want things to be stored and they want to have a solution that solves all their problems and is reliable and is scalable. But like if they didn't have to think about it, I mean, you know, if you take a company, you know, like, for example, you know, Coinbase is one of our users. They don't have any value in going and building a distributed storage engine or understanding and learning a new storage engine. If their only goal is to like, you know, store things for their users or their customers, that's all undifferentiated. Differentiated. Any work that they do that isn't just writing the business logic to achieve that goal is basically a waste of time for them. And so I think that, you know, like if I had to sum up the temporal vision in one way, it's like minimizing the amount of time that you do things that aren't beneficial to your business and like minimizing the amount of time developers spend writing code, which isn't directly valuable to the thing that they're trying to do. So as the head of product, can you take me inside like an average day for you? Like, what is your engagement with customers like? How are you interfacing between the customers and the engineering teams that you work with? And just how do those kinds of customer demands get translated into product decisions? So this is going to be an interesting answer because... At this point, I'm kind of filling a, a few different roles within the company. So I'm in charge of the product side of things, but also as of right now, you know, I'm the one who's responsible for the sales processes, you know, like getting the initial customers, the one who does most of the interaction with users. You know, I'm starting to build out this team and we have some already amazing people on it. But in terms of, you know, sort of the outbound work, myself and even the founders are the ones who are doing the most of the, the heavy lifting there. And so, you know, I spend a lot of my time, like even playing a solution architecture role. I think that's one of the, you know, kind of really 
great values that I have because, you know, I do have this developer background. I've spent a lot of time writing distributed systems. So a lot of the times our customer engagement starts as me just helping a user with one of their problems who's, you know, running on the open source version of Temporal. And, you know, eventually I realize, hey, look, this user, this company, they don't want to be running Temporal themselves. Like there's no value. And just in the same way that, you know, there's no value in building all this distributed systems boilerplate and distributed systems sort of like infrastructure to solve your business use case. There's no point in like running that thing if it doesn't provide you differentiated value either. And so, you know, I have a lot of customers that I just kind of get organically from the point of view of me working with them as users. Sometimes, you know, we become friends and then it becomes clear and it just is a very easy conversation to have and say, hey, look, like we have a hosted solution. You already trust us to write the technology. Like you could easily trust us to run this thing on the cloud as well. And so it's a pretty nice process in that sense. Obviously, it's not scalable, like I'm a single person. And so, you know, we're actively trying to, you know, basically create this structure within the company so we can have these, you know, formal sales processes where we go out and, you know, kind of get users inorganically and not just, you know, the ones who are already within our ecosystem. And so going back to the question, you know, about my day to day, I actually have a very diverse day to day. So I spend a lot of time doing, you know, product stuff right now. For example, I'm doing a lot of product work around the new features we want to build in our cloud offering. You know, a lot of the stuff around how the control plane of the cloud offering is going to be designed and how that will be surfaced to customers. I do a lot of stuff around like, you know, the more outbound solution architecture work where I'm meeting with companies. You know, we have a lot of huge companies, Fortune 100 companies who want to switch to temporal. And oftentimes they have like a global distributed system already that's, you know, running in production and they need to like, you know, migrate that thing. And so it's not just a case of like, well, it's a greenfield project, go and start writing with temporal. It's like, we have to have a real practical plan and strategy and timeline of like, how do you piecemeal this thing away and eventually have a fully temporal solution instead of what you're using already. So that's like the solution architecture piece. And then, you know, also there's like a developer relations side, you know, like content and marketing. So I feel like it's very important for us to really start building our messaging and really start building our our place within, you know, the ecosystem, even though, you know, we don't know how to place ourselves necessarily. Like we think we're sort of a fundamentally new category of software, but it's really important that we at least start educating people and we really start getting awareness out about, you know, what you can do with Temporal and what are the things that you shouldn't be doing with Temporal. So there's a lot of time spent on the sort of, you know, relation side and the content and the marketing. And then also, you know, more of like from the engineering side, I try to make sure that I stay involved with those processes. And I understand, you know, what we're doing with our control plane efforts. And if we have changes that we want to make to our architecture, that I'm aware of that side of things as well. And so I would say I play a pretty holistic role in that sense right now, just kind of tying things across the board together. So we have like a well-functioning machine. Are there any notable changes that you've seen in software architecture from your vantage point as uh, managing product, just trends in how developers are using new tools, like whether it's serverless or you know Google Cloud Run or or whatever the open source version of that is. There's the, I can't remember what it is. Knative, maybe I don't remember what it is. But I just love to hear if you've seen any changes in architectural patterns. I have to think about it for a sec. So obviously the biggest one is, is temporal itself that people are kind of, you know, embracing this formalized way to represent their systems. In terms of other, you know, things, I was kind of like on the ground for the serverless movement, you know, like my last company that I helped start. 
we were building a competitor to AWS Lambda. And so I was there from sort of like, you know, day one. And, you know, initially what is actually really interesting is that most serious developers, they actually didn't care about things like serverless and Lambda. And that's actually a problem we ran into at my last business is that, you know, people thought it was very interesting conceptually, but like when it came down to practically rebuilding their application with it, they were very resistant. And I think, you know, there's the obvious one, which is like, it's a new model and people don't fully understand it. But there also just wasn't the belief that, that it could fundamentally solve the problems that people were experiencing. And so, you know, I think one thing I've seen is that, you know, over the last like four or five years, developers have been buying more and more into this in this serverless thing. I think part of it is that, you know, a lot of developers started having to do ops and they're like, yeah, well, that's not as fun as I expected it to be. And so now they're like, well, maybe there's a way that I don't have to do ops. And so they're getting more interested in the serverless solutions. But I still don't think that anyone has truly delivered on, you know, the serverless dream in the way that most people expected when like Lambda was released, like I expected at least when Lambda was released. And, you know, interestingly enough, I think Temporal is probably one of the closest in that that vein to solving the real serverless problem because, you know, we're not providing like an infrastructure specific way of solving it. We're saying like, here's this generic open source technology. You don't have to develop things with the understanding of the specific infrastructure primitives. And, you know, you also can run it yourself. And so I think, you know, like serverless, definitely I've seen more and more interest from it from like the ideological side. Like I don't see that many more people using it, but I see a lot more people wanting to use something that serverless would represent and, you know, solving those problems for them. I think the other big thing is that, you know, like the sort of growth and the adoption of things like Netlify and Vercel definitely sort of signals a really important change in the way that, you know, developers are thinking and the way that companies are operating, which is that, you know, before, like, you know, up until like maybe even three or four years ago, developers were very much a means to an end. Like, you know, it didn't really matter whether your developers were that happy, as long as they were happy enough that they weren't writing bad software and they were, you know, building the system that you wanted them to build, you, you were good. And I think, you know, the thing is that you can see how that manifested in the way that products are designed. And again, going back to like AWS, you know, like it's not meant to be the most friendly thing in the world. Like it is not a great developer experience. And I think even AWS would probably admit that. And so I think, you know, what I've seen, this big trend that I've been seeing is that the developer experience is something that has like a financial amount associated with it now. Like people are actually taking real interest in that. And that's why you're seeing companies like, you know, Netlify and, and Vercel really gaining traction and people becoming very excited about them because they're actually products which cater to developers. They're not like a product which developers have to use and are kind of, you know, clunky and not so enjoyable. Like it's a product which is first and foremost made to improve the developer experience. And so I think that the big trend I've seen is that like the world and the economy or whatever it is, the powers that be, they really value developers now. And like they really think that developers aren't just a way to accomplish the goal of building software for your business, but they're also like an integral part of like the business itself functioning well. And, you know, making them happy is a real way of making sure that your business is going to stay healthy and stay successful. And so I think that's, that's an awesome trend. I'm super duper excited about it because I think it opens up a lot of opportunities for people to bring in products like Temporal into the ecosystem and really differentiate in an area and a vertical which has not been really valued up until now. And I think that's going to be very empowering for developers and just users in general because, you know, it's no longer just about like the core raw, you know, kind of requirements and sort of like, you know, baseline things needed to have something up and running. It's also about like how enjoyable is it to build that and maintain it and scale it. Cool. You know, lastly, this is a pretty far-flung question, so you may not have an answer for it, but do you have any perspective on whether temporal is, or cadence, I should say, is useful for solving any kinds of the distributed systems problems that can emerge from crypto applications? 
Yeah, there's a very funny joke that Sean, who's like our head of developer experience, uh, he likes to say that, you know, it's inevitable at some point there will be like a temporal coin. So I think there's actually like a lot of alignment and a lot of sort of ideological similarities between, you know, the blockchain and, and temporal. I think the most obvious one is that, you know, there's this level of sort of like guarantees of, you know, the way that things have executed and sort of an audibility of those executions. And so, you know, in temporal, we have this notion or concept of like an event history, which is the list of all the events that have been generated from your running workflow or your application during its life cycle that made changes to the state. And so I think, you know, from like, again, like the ideological perspective, blockchain is very, very similar to that, where, you know, you want to have this sort of ledger of, of transactions where you can prove at any point in time, what were the order of operations? How did they happen? And go back and make sure that you can trace through that and have a guarantee that, you know, things went the way that you expected them to go. So I think just from that point alone, there's a lot of alignment. I think, you know, in the sense of, you know, how can you leverage temporal to make cryptocurrency or, you know, blockchain solutions even better? You've already seen some of that. Like, you know, again, we have a case study from Coinbase, they're obviously using Temporal or Cadence, you know, to pretty much orchestrate their core cryptocurrency transaction load. And so I think that's a great example where, you know, Temporal is very synergistic. It's not just like, you know, there's an ideological alignment, like there's a value add that it adds to those processes because the goals and the, you know, the expectations are very, very similar. So I think that's one. I think, you know, we have a lot of people actually who come to us and ask, you know, have you considered using Temporal to implement some sort of like you know, blockchain yourself or, you know, having a more tight integration there? And right now we, we don't have any plans for that, but I think it's something that you will likely see grow organically in the in the future, even if we don't have any hand in it. I think that's something that people are going to start realizing is a, is a really good synergy and they want to start, you know, building those systems natively with Temporal or Cadence from the beginning. So yeah, I think there's there's definitely a lot of overlap there. I think, you know, they represent kind of similar desires in, in different contexts of like, you know, making sure that you can prove what happened and, you know, have some sort of way to reason about it and not feel like there's some sort of other element or, you know, entity that can kind of get in the way and mess with those things so you don't have the visibility and clarity. Awesome. Okay. Well, that sounds like a good place to close off. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Glad to hear. I've, I've had a great time.